Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So often, when we think of some of the well-known characters of our period... We consider them in isolation. It can be too easy to forget the networks, connections and relationships between them. And yet, obviously, putting them in context offers a deeper, a fuller way to read their lives. Such is the case with our subjects today, three interconnected queens of 16th century Europe. Catherine de' Medici, the Italian woman who became queen and later queen mother of France, her daughter, Elizabeth de Valois, who became Queen of Spain, and Mary, Queen of Scots from days after her birth and later Queen of France, with pretensions to be Queen of England, who was Catherine's daughter-in-law and who grew up calling Elizabeth de Valois her sister. My guest today, Dr. Leia Redmond-Chan, formerly Professor of French at George Washington University and Senior Research Associate at University College London, has written a wonderful book about these three women, which examines their lives in context, drawing out their relationships and also drawing on the parallels between them. These were girls and young women who had to leave behind their homelands, later leave behind their children, and in different ways face the challenges of trying to rule as well as reign. The book is called Young Queens, Three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power, And it is perhaps most illuminating on that last clause, the price of their success. It's a masterful evocation of their lives based on huge amounts of archival research and written with verve. And I'm delighted to have the chance to speak to Dr. Redmond Chan about the lives of these women at the heart of European power. Dr. Leah Redmond-Chan, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you about this book. I was lucky enough to receive a proof copy of it. So I've been thinking about this for some time and I have a lot of questions. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely to be here. So let's start with Catherine de' Medici, born in April 1519 to give people a sort of sense of what we're talking about. Could you introduce her? Who was she? And how did she end up, as it were, at the beginning of the book in a convent? So she is born a Medici. She is the sole heir of the senior line of the Medici family, which was a bit unfortunate for her for a host of reasons. The Medici were hoping that she'd be a boy because then their claim to Florence would have been failsafe. But unfortunately, she was born a girl. But because she is a Medici, she has a certain value. And she ends up in a convent at the age of eight because Florence is undergoing a fair bit of turmoil. The Medici have always had their enemies. And at the time, there was something of a power vacuum. Catherine's cousin, Clement, who is the Pope in Rome, it's her cousin, but he calls himself her uncle. He's in Rome. And so there isn't an adult male in Florence from the Medici family who can keep hold of power in Florence. At the time, Florence undergoes what's known as the Florentine Uprising and a Republican council of various different magistrates in Florence forms, and they oust the Medici. And so they take young Catherine, who's eight, and they make her a hostage. And so they house her in this convent, actually a series of convents, in order just to keep her safe while keeping control of her. And they're using her as a bargaining chip against Clement Seventh. And she ends up in this convent in Florence, which turns out to be quite a nice home for her for about three years. And her fate, like the other women in this book, will be to leave her homeland. Your book is subtitled The Price of Power, and we'll talk as we go on about 
several different ways in which that had to be paid. But one of them is this sending out. So we see her arriving in France and then she has what we can only describe as a rather unusual wedding night, doesn't she? <laughs> yes. So she arrives in France. She's 14 years old. She's slated to marry the Duke of Orléans, who is the second son of the French king, Francis I, Henry. So there's two 14-year-olds. And they have the wedding. She's put to bed. And according to an Italian diplomat, her father-in-law, Francis I, stays in the room to watch and make sure that the marriage is consummated. There's this one source that claims that the particular diplomat who reports it is really shocked. <laughs> and I have to believe that it's true. The issue here is that Francis needs to make sure that marriage is consummated, that there's no going back on it. And that's because he's made a deal with Clement VII, who is going to endorse some of his claims in Italy through this marriage. And for Francis, that's quite a win. He's in the middle of extended wars against Spain for territories in Italy. They're known as the Italian Wars. And so Catherine is something of a prize and a bargaining chip. But as you point out in the book, I mean, this might have put poor Henry a little bit off his stride, let alone Catherine. And of course, the context of this is what's been happening in England, the question about whether Catherine of Aragon had consummated her marriage to Henry VIII's brother, Arthur. So terrible as it is, there is a good reason for it. There's a good reason, but I think that it's worth stopping and thinking about what this actually looked like, that these are two teenagers in bed together more or less forced to have sex. You can imagine how awkward that must have been. And for poor Catherine, poor Henry too, and we can certainly talk about him. I don't want to suggest that the price of power is paid only by the women. It's just that they pay it in a certain way and young men pay it in a different way. But she barely speaks French. She must have been just so gratified to become married, to finally have a place to settle in, to know what her future was going to be. She had such a tumultuous childhood but then to be put in this situation where awkward, <laughs> to say the least, is the way to describe it. But to some degree, perhaps slightly traumatising. Yes, entirely understandably. And those early years of marriage are marked by the fact that Henry and Catherine do not bear a child for years. At the same time as we have Henry very pointedly demonstrating his sexuality with his mistress, Diane de Poitiers. And I wonder what you think we should make of that first decade of their relationship. Okay, it's such a complicated question, and maybe I'll delve into that more <laughs> in the future. I would love to unpack it. I think traditionally that it's, let's call it a threesome. The dynamic in the threesome has been seen as one of barely veiled hostility. And it was quite a long relationship. Catherine had to live with Henry and Diane in her life for years and years. And no doubt there were those moments of extreme tension. But at the same time, I've always wondered, I think that there is definitely some evidence to support the idea that it wasn't always tense. And in fact, Diane and Catherine built a kind of mutually beneficial existence. And part of that has to do with the fact that Catherine was barren for a while. Let me back up a little bit and say that who knows exactly what their sex lives, Henry and Catherine, were at the beginning <laughs> because of the circumstances around their marriage and the fact that they're 14 years old. We can't forget that. But she has trouble conceiving. And at the beginning, it's not good that she has trouble conceiving because she really needs to have a child if she's going to secure her place at the French court. But the pressure really mounts once Henry's older brother dies and Henry becomes the heir to the throne. And then for the sake of legacy and his own legitimacy as the heir, it's really important that he and Catherine bear a child and she cannot conceive. And in fact, a number of people at the court try to help Catherine in various different ways. And there's been a lot of speculation about why Diane tries to help Catherine. And in part, it's because Catherine, she felt hostility towards Diane. She just grit her teeth. She was willing to put up with it. And so Diane was able to create quite an influential position for herself and really augment her power 
at Henry's side. And so it worked for her. And so she had every reason to keep Catherine on board. But then later, when Catherine does succeed in having a child and then having several children, Diane was quite instrumental in keeping those children safe and healthy and thriving. And when I think about it, how difficult that must have been for Catherine to be bearing children all the time, to making sure that they stay safe. You need all hands on deck. (laughs) And Diane was definitely there and very invested in the health of the young royal children. To some degree, it was a relationship that worked, at least for a good amount of time. At this stage, I suppose we ought to introduce the Guise family, who are going to become important to the story. Who are they? The Guise are a very powerful family in France. They actually are a princely family from Lorraine, which is an independent duchy at the time. So in France, they're considered foreign princes, and that gives them a certain rank in France. And, you know, the first generation of Guises come into France, that is the young Duke of Guise named Claude de Guise, and he befriends Francis I when they're both quite young. And that launches the Guises' career in France. Claude de Guise marries Antoinette de Bourbon, so she's related to the French royal family, and she is quite a character. That is a woman who I really would love to meet, (laughs) to know her a little bit better. Let me just say that I think some of these noble families, when you look at their successes, they are entirely attributable to the women. And I think more could definitely be said about that. And if Claude de Guise is the patriarch, Antoinette de Bourbon is definitely the matriarch. And the Guises are very ambitious. They really are looking to their careers in France, and they're quite eager to establish themselves as monarchs in their own right in some court in Europe. And they get the chance to do that with Marie de Guise, the daughter of Claude and Antoinette, who eventually marries the King of Scotland. But one other thing I should mention about the Guises, which is so important to their success, is that this family absolutely loves each other. They are completely devoted to each other. And it begins with the marriage of Claude de Guise and Antoinette de Bourbon. That couple, it was really a romance, as far as I can tell. One of my favorite letters between the Guises, Claude at some point writes this very apologetic letter to Antoinette de Bourbon, I think because he's had an affair or something. And she's found out. And he goes on and on in this letter. And it's quite awkward because he's not a great writer. (laughs) But asking for her forgiveness, which evidently she gave him, but it just shows the respect. It's different maybe than what we would consider respect today, but the respect between that couple. So that same kind of family feeling, the strong family bonds continues on into the next generation. And I really see that as part of why they become so successful, not just in France, but truly across Europe. It's because that family takes people in. It takes women in, the brides who marry into the Guise family. And something happens. They successfully transform all those women into loyal Guise women. So they just create this network with a huge clientele and... That allows them to exert tremendous influence in the kingdom. And of course, then eventually, once Catherine becomes queen mother, they really are, in many ways, the power behind the throne. Now, one of the Guise women who is relevant to this story is Marie de Guise, you've already mentioned. And this is just a side note to a theme that comes up again and again and again about this price paid. I found it unbearably sad when I read your chapter about the separation of Marie de Guise, not only from her mother, but from her son when he was three years old, the chapter you call The Price. Later, as we'll see, she's separated from her daughter when she's five. Later in the story, we'll have Juana, sister of Philip II, who has to leave her infant Sebastian at four months old, never sees him again. Mary, Queen of Scots, will leave her son James at 10 months old. I mean, this just came up again and again. And it is unbearable. I mean, it must have been unbearably sad to write about as well. But also just this extraordinary thing that women at this time who are in royal families have to do is quite something. It really is something, and I agree with you. Marie's little three-year-old son, François de Longueville, is one of my favorite characters in this whole book. 
I think because it happens so often, sometimes we forget what that must have done to all of them psychologically. And yet you can see in the letters just this effort to establish connection, however possible, and also a kind of sadness and desire that's expressed over and over again, that they can no longer see their children, that they fear for them. Going back to Marie de Guise, speaking about the price, she has to leave her son, François de Longueville, but she's already lost a baby when that happened. Marie de Guise, before she marries James, the King of Scotland, she was married to the Duke of Longueville in France. And she has two children. One is the three-year-old we're talking about, François, but also another baby who she buries when he's six months old. And the marriage proposal with James comes quite soon after that burial. And that's the other piece of it is that they have these children. So often children die or a husband dies and almost right away, these women have to reconsider another marriage. It's part of the system, but it's also part of their duty as noble women. That you really feel with the Guises. I talked about this sort of family feeling and this family loyalty. And you can feel that with Marie de Guise. She feels so strongly about her family. So she agrees to marry James for their sake to some degree. But she almost wasn't ready. She almost refused that offer because she just wasn't ready to leave that area. And then plus she would have to leave the three-year-old. And she does. And she only sees him again when he's 15 years old. And in the meantime, they have all these letters that go back and forth. And I was just amazed when I read those letters by François de Longueville. He starts to dictate them when he's about five years old. And I could just picture him. He's just chattering along and someone in the Guise household is writing all this down word for word, including the stuff that's a little bit garbled or nonsensical because he's five and he can hardly stop talking. And then they sent this off to her. And I think that is evidence of how they were trying to keep that relationship between mother and son alive as best they could, while acknowledging that Marie had to do her duty by going to Scotland and that she was doing something quite significant for her family in doing so. A wonderful source to consider childhood in this period as well, which is something we so often find difficult to access. Gone Medieval from History Hit, we set out to solve the biggest mysteries of the medieval age. So many of these travellers who went out looking for Prester John, what did they think they were hearing? Using science to identify our buried ancestors. Genetic signatures found in present-day Ashkenazi Jewish populations were shared by the genetic ancestries we found in these individuals. And reveal the answers to centuries-old riddles. I stand up straight in a bed, I'm hairy at my base and I make the ladies cry. The solution is an onion. I'm Matt Lewis and every Tuesday and Friday you can join me to travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and to get under the skins of the ones you have. Gone Medieval from History Hit, twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head 
to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So the next child that she is separated from is central to your story, Mary, who's Queen of Scots from a few days after her birth, who arrives in France at the age of five and you say has a kind of ineffable quality even at that stage. What's the relationship between her and Catherine? I think one thing that happens with these women is that we tend to look back on their relationship with a lot of hindsight of what it would become. It's very hard not to. That's just the way history is written, right? It's written after the fact. So one of the challenges for me was to try to get that out of my head and encounter them as maybe they would have encountered each other for the first time. So when Mary lands in France, she's five years old. She also has experienced a certain degree of trauma. It's hard to know how much she was sheltered from that. She's essentially fleeing Scotland because of what's known as the rough wooing. England is waging war in Scotland and her mother, Marie de Guise, is afraid that she's going to be kidnapped. So she sends her to France for safekeeping. But Mary had been on the run a little bit in the months prior. So she comes to France and is more or less welcomed with open arms into the Guise family who right away take her in and it's understood that they are going to be her family while she's in France. They are her family. But there are a number of letters that are sent to Marie de Guise as soon as Mary lands from everyone in France just explaining that her daughter is safely there and that she's beautiful. And these letters are all meant to soften the trauma of the separation that Marie de Guise must have felt when she sent Mary away. But Catherine writes one of the letters, and just like everybody else, the tone is gentle and soft and so full of praise of Mary. And there's a lot of talk about how beautiful Mary was as a child and indeed for all of her life. Who knows? (laughs) Some of this might have been a little bit of flattery, but to all evidence, she was quite robust. She's very tall. She's glowing as a little child. She's quite articulate. And so it seems like Catherine, like everybody else, was taken with the young Mary. And that lasts for quite a while. Catherine, again, whether she's just doing her duty or if she feels real affection for Mary, keeps her quite close in with the other royal children. Mary is raised in the Petit Cour, the little court, the royal nursery, alongside the other royal children. But Catherine also spends a considerable amount of time with her, teaching her to embroider. And we do have evidence that she also physically took care of her when Mary was ill, in some ways stands in as something of a mother figure. There were a number of women who kind of substitute for Marie de Guise while Mary is at the French court, and Catherine is one of them. One other thing we often think of with hindsight is that Mary, Queen of Scots, will marry a prince of France and will become Queen of France. But even the marriage itself was not always certain. And you're very good at explaining European politics at the time. And one connection you make is between the fall of Calais and the wedding. Could you make that connection here? So one of the things I will say about the marriage and the fact that it isn't really certain until Mary is a teenager is that when Mary, Queen of Scots, because she's already queen by the time she's nine days old, comes to France, part of the agreement between Marie de Guise and Henry II is that Mary will marry the Dauphin Francis when they're a little bit older. But it wasn't set in stone. It's a soft agreement. One of the things that strikes me about Renaissance culture is that because people die all the time from illness or accident, people die as children, as young adults, you could never be sure of the future. 
I'm struck time and again by how often families, including the Guises, will just grab their chance whenever they see it and deal with the consequences later. In a previous battle, Henry's mentor, Anne de Montmorency, who really was like a father figure to him because Francis I was a neglectful father, he is imprisoned and Henry is desperate to see him again. And caught up in this is the fall of Calais. The issue was, is that at the time, Philip II is married to Mary Tudor and the English have hold of Calais. And as part of ongoing Italian wars, the Guises take Calais away from the English. And that's considered this wonderful success for France because they haven't had hold of Calais in generations. So Henry II is thrilled because as part of the fall of Calais, he also gets to see his mentor returned and Montmorency to France and he's relieved. So the Guises swoop in at this moment and they decide how Henry can really repay them. They convince Henry that following their tremendous success, maybe the right thing to do is finally marry Mary Queen of Scots to Francis II. In that way, the betrothal is actually solidified and in 1558, the two are married. And one thing I love about your book is the way that you make these lateral connections between huge international events and domestic fates. It's really impressive and connects up the dots in such important ways. Of course, for Catherine, as we skip ahead two years, married life is just ending. So let's talk about the destiny that cannot be avoided and Catherine's reaction and her new role. Yes, it's interesting that you put it, the destiny that cannot be avoided, because there is something almost like Greek tragedy about it. It's almost fatalistic. And certainly that's the way it's talked about in the 16th century itself, and certainly by historians ever since. The time is 1559, and the place is Paris. And it's just following Elizabeth de Valois' wedding to Philip II of Spain, which is a huge deal, even bigger in many ways than the marriage between Mary Queen of Scots and Francis, because it's also marking the end of the Italian wars between Spain and France. They have finally found a way to end it. And as part of the marriage treaty, the young Elizabeth of Valois, who's only 13, will marry Philip II. And Henry is so happy about it that he orders several jousts and tournaments. And he decides that he is going to ride in one of these tournaments. And why shouldn't he? He's only 40. He's a tremendous athlete and he really wants to impress the Spanish. But in one of these tournaments, when he's riding, he has a horrifying accident and he is killed. He actually is mortally wounded at the tournament and then dies 10 days later. And that thrusts Catherine into an entirely new role. At that point, she becomes the queen dowager but Catherine insists on being called the Queen Mother. And her son, Francis, who at the time is just 15 years old, takes over as King of France. He's completely unprepared. No one had expected Henry to die. And everyone thought that Francis and his consort Mary would have a few more years under their belt until they had to take over. And Francis himself is still very much a boy. He's not the healthiest of kids, but he's also just perhaps not the most mature intellectually and psychologically. So he needs a lot of help. And the first people to help him are the Guises, who again, seize their opportunity as the relatives of Mary Queen of Scots to become the powers behind the throne. But the other person who is so instrumental is Catherine. And to me, that's a really interesting time because we actually don't really know what was going on in her head at the time. Again, just like young girls where their lives are not necessarily well documented, this period of time in Catherine's life is not actually that well documented, partially because she is the widow. She was expected to go into mourning. I don't think anyone really expected her to truly be the power behind the throne. And so they're not really watching her. Everyone is watching somebody else. But in fact, whether she was actually actively planning it or if she just slips into this role, she, within days of Henry's death, starts to put the pieces in place so that she can become a very important counselor to Francis. He is too old to have a regent. He's 15. At the time, he's technically considered to be in his majority, so not actually in need of a regent or any kind of regency council, but he obviously needs help and he looks to her 
almost from the beginning as someone who's going to show him the way. And you mentioned that the catalyst to Henry's death is, of course, the marriage of one of Catherine's daughters, Elizabeth de Valois, to the King of Spain. So let's pick up her story as well, as you do in the book. You give a great sense of her reception and the nature of life at the Spanish court. One of the things I was really struck by, again, another theme, another price to be paid, is sickness that arrives with this child. In the New York Times this past weekend, there was an article about chronic illness and trauma in women. And this made me think about the evidence you give of Catherine's manipulative, sometimes spiteful, solipsistic, possibly narcissistic. I mean, she's quite controlling. She's sometimes cruel correspondence and relationship with her daughter Elizabeth and actually whether we are seeing in the kind of chronic sickness that poor Elizabeth endures in her new life in Spain something that reflects that relationship that you illuminate so well. That is a great question and first let me say that Elizabeth isn't the only one. A lot of these young women have these illnesses and it's so hard to evaluate them because The reporting in the past isn't the same necessarily as we would report today. You can't always be sure exactly what symptoms they're suffering, but certainly for a lot of young women, you do see accounts of their suffering, and it does seem to be to a slightly different degree than maybe other people. But Elizabeth, she was ill, quite ill, but it would come in episodes. Sometimes she was ill and sometimes quite robust. And it does seem clear that some of this illness is related to her menstrual cycle. And that if she has a chronic illness, that menstruating or not menstruating is actually aggravating this. But some of the illness too does seem to be psychologically, if not induced, that it's tied to her psychological state. To all evidence, she came to Spain with something. Catherine alludes to it. So do the ladies-in-waiting, the French ambassador, but they're quiet about it, as if no one really wants to say it out loud. And perhaps that's because they were worried about who might be the spies in the court, who might get their hands on the letters and see. But later on, it's clear that also at the court of Spain, they're quite aware that Elizabeth isn't in the best of health. In the beginning, it was a secret. By the end, it was definitely an open secret. But Elizabeth has, speaking about the price, she definitely pays quite a large one because with the death of her father, the significance of her marriage, there was already going to be a lot of pressure in that marriage, but the pressures just multiply because now what everyone is worried about is that the decades long wars between France and Spain, which were meant to end thanks to an agreement between Henry and Philip, that they might start again. And you get the feeling that Catherine believes that the only thing holding the peace is Elizabeth's success as a bride to Philip II. But Elizabeth is 13 years old when she's married. She's 13 when she arrives in Spain. She's still playing with dolls. She's very much a child. And physically, she's not mature. If she had menstruated at all, it is not established. I don't think she was getting her period really at all until she had been there for about a year and a half. And so this puts a tremendous psychological burden on Elizabeth. And I would suspect actually that in fact, some of the symptoms that they were seeing, headaches, nosebleeds, vomiting, fainting spells, just a general gloominess, depression, disordered eating, probably had something to do with the trauma of leaving home under such traumatic conditions, not just the parting from her family, who she really loved, after the extremely traumatic death of her father. It seems to make sense, because you mentioned that she's not the only one, and it's something that Mary herself will experience, you say, in your book. And if we, again, skip forward another year or so, we find that Mary herself is soon in mourning. She experiences the death of her husband, very young. And you say that, you know, essentially she has successfully been made French. France has schooled her religion, has cultivated her mind, sculpted her tongue. You say in one lovely line. And another price to be paid here is returning to Scotland. In many ways, she's leaving her homeland just as much as Elizabeth was. And I was really struck reading your book by her loneliness after she arrives in Scotland in 1561. 
Yeah, so this is another moment where I really tried to put myself in Mary's shoes. And I just can't help but think that how could she not have felt French? She'd been there since the time she was five, even if they had tried hard, and I don't think they tried that hard, to maintain the Scottish connections. If you send any young child anywhere, they just quite quickly absorb the ethos and the customs and the language, etc., of the place itself. And the, the Guise had also really cultivated this French mindset, as had Henry II, because it was to their advantage. The court of France is definitely the prize, right? More so than Scotland. You almost get the sense they see Scotland as just a way of getting to the much more valuable rank of queen consort of France. The Guises see that as much more valuable to their career in France. And so they really encouraged her to think of herself as French and also to think of herself as an integral part of the French royal family. She starts calling Elizabeth of Valois and the other French royal princess's sister from the time she's a little child. You really think that Mary thinks of herself as their sister. And then, of course, that is solidified when she actually marries Francis. When Francis dies and she gets sent back to Scotland, it's almost like she is undergoing this identity crisis. She doesn't really know who she is anymore. Something that is so integral to who she is, how she thought of herself, has just been taken away. And she's in Scotland. The language, it's familiar, but it's certainly not her language anymore. The customs are different. She's thrust in the role of now having to take the reins. And certainly she hadn't really done that, even though she was queen regnant while she lived in France. Other people did that for her. But mostly she wants to go back to the way it was. And I feel like so many of her decisions in the future, in the coming years, have something to do, whether or not she recognized it, or if it was more subconscious, with getting back to that place. Yes, and one of the great sadnesses of her later life is that that is not where she's sent. She's not sent to be with her son, and she's not sent to France. When she is thinking of ways to assuage this loneliness, and also because, as you say, she was being brought up to be a queen consort, not a queen regnant, she has this sense of wanting to marry because of that. One of the possible suitors for both Mary and indeed for one of her so-called sisters is the Spanish prince Don Carlos. And I didn't realise before the extent to which Mary, Queen of Scots, pursued marriage with him almost two years of secret negotiations. It's a fascinating sort of sliding doors moment of history of what could have been. But Don Carlos's story, which you tell so well, is very moving. I suppose the question I want to ask, which is a very difficult question, but is what was wrong with Don Carlos and why could this not be? We don't know exactly what was wrong with Don Carlos, although I think I say in the book, and I'll say it again, because I actually feel quite bad for Don Carlos. He's really been made to seem monstrous, even in his fairly recent historical treatments. The way he's talked about is often quite dismissively that he's crazy or that just quite unsympathetically. But this is a disabled boy. Part of the source of Don Carlos's disability is that he's the product of a lot of inbreeding. The Habsburgs, but also his Spanish family, they all marry each other <laughs> because that's the way to consolidate the power and the crowns of Europe that they're slowly amassing. And he is mentally unstable and physically there seems to be some problems as well. One of the reasons why it's so hard to get a sense of what he actually was suffering from is because a lot of the reporting from the period is also quite cruel and it's also based on hearsay. People would talk about him who had never actually met him, but so they were going from rumors that they had heard. But Mary was very invested in marrying Don Carlos, again, because the structure of that marriage, I think, would have mirrored quite closely what she had experienced in France. So I think it was Jenny Wormald who talks about Mary as the reluctant ruler, and I completely agree. Mary really shines as a queen consort. And in some ways, the tragedy is that she should have been a queen consort, and she actually might have exerted more influence, positive influence, and even been more of a political player than she eventually became if she had remained a queen consort. But she's desperate to get back to that 
consort role for a couple of reasons. Partially, she already has designs on the crown of England, which is famous history. But again, I would allude back to that identity crisis that she seems to be suffering from. If she married Don Carlos, she would be future queen consort of Spain. She'd be married to a potential heir, and she would be under the supervision, if you will, or in the hands of a much stronger king, which in this case is Philip II. And Mary likes to be handled. She was handled by her mother, who served as her regent, by her Guise uncle. She likes to be told what to do. She's much more comfortable just having other people do the work for her. And I feel like that's what she really wants. So she tries once with Don Carlos, it falls through. She tries again, but ultimately it cannot be. Philip is not very excited about marrying Don Carlos off, partially because of his disability. I suppose it's what Mary was used to being told what to do, but it had to be by the right sort of status of person, because one of the shocking things for her in turning up in Scotland is coming across a very different political theory of the relationship between subjects and monarchs to that which she had known in France. And one gets a sense that this was wholly surprising to her and really sort of pulled the rug out from underneath her feet. She doesn't really know how to cope with the Scottish nobles, with John Knox and with the opposition to this Catholic queen, does she? No, no. And in all fairness, she's 18 years old. I think we can't forget that. She's a teenager. <laughs> and she gets back and the nobles are extremely powerful. They're powerful in France too, but there isn't perhaps quite that same sense of the monarch is almost a divine figure. And on top of it, the Protestant Reformation has really taken off in Scotland in a way that was still more subdued in France. It's definitely getting going when Mary was queen consort of France, but it's full-throated by the time she gets to Scotland. And Mary is also used to pleasing people. That's where she gets her power from. She's used to the spotlight. She's used to everyone liking her. And I think that's what she really wants. She wants people to like her. And she thinks that by doing that, by pleasing people, she can maybe keep everything control in her kingdom. And to some degree, she's not wrong. I think her Guise uncle, the Cardinal of Lorraine, really encouraged her to try to be tolerant, knowing that as an 18-year-old girl, she couldn't just bulldoze her way in there and insist that she was going to have to tread lightly in order to keep Scotland calm. And then another teacher of hers, Catherine de' Medici, certainly does believe in buying people off, you know, as you need them. Mary, to some degree, is putting into place the same tactics that Catherine would have done, but it just doesn't work as well for her. And that may be partially because she's 18. Catherine wasn't forced to do this at the age of 18. She had time. By the time Henry dies, she's 40 years old. So she really had time to learn how the court works, how her nobles work. Mary did not have that benefit of time. And that's not something you can just read about and take in. It's something you learn on the ground. And she has to learn quickly. And unfortunately, she's not able to do so. Talking of learning and Catherine's tactics, I was struck by the meeting between Elizabeth and Catherine that happens some years after Elizabeth has gone to Spain. There's very much a sense in that that Elizabeth has grown up, time has passed, she has developed a backbone, and you say that she's using Catherine's weapons against her. Can you tell me more about that changing dynamic? This was one of the sort of catch-22s of sending your child off to a foreign country when they're so young. So Elizabeth leaves France for Spain when she's 13, and she has this brilliant and very rich correspondence with her mother. So she always will remain loyal to her mother to some degree. But again, imagine you're a 13-year-old and moving permanently to a foreign country, you start to take in their beliefs and their customs. And effectively, over the course of not very many years, Elizabeth embraces the Spanish mindset. She can't help it. She lives there now. But also, Catherine has raised her to be a good wife. And so she wants to be a good wife to Philip, who actually treats her quite well. But the other thing that happens in this particular meeting, it's at Bayonne in the south of France, and it's meant to be a meeting between the two kingdoms. And Catherine is very interested in getting Philip to endorse her policies of moderation 
in France. And what she's trying to do is create a sense of tolerance between the warring religions in France, mostly to avoid all out civil war, which she fails at. And she's already failed at by the time she and Elizabeth meet. But she really wants Philip and Elizabeth to agree that she's doing a good job and that her strategies are the right ones. But Elizabeth doesn't agree. Elizabeth is very much a Catholic queen. She is pious. She was raised in Catholicism by the time she gets to Spain. That has hardened even more, in fact, because you know, Spain is so Catholic. And so she's not that interested in endorsing her mother's policies of toleration. But she also warns her mother that Philip has no plans to do so. And so Catherine better get in line and crush French Protestants if she wants any help from Philip at all. It's a moment where you can almost imagine the look on Catherine's face. <laughs> it's just floored. Elizabeth is probably her favorite child, certainly her favorite daughter. It's been a very loving reunion. And then Elizabeth effectively lays down the law, which is exactly what Catherine would have done. Catherine wants what she wants, and she'll do whatever it takes to get it. And Elizabeth is showing that same grit to Catherine, and Catherine can only accept it. She has no other choice. Now, there's much more we could say about the later 1560s. You've mentioned Catherine trying to manage the religious divisions in France. We've got Mary famously marrying Darnley and the fallout of that, Bothwell. There's the horrible affair of Don Carlos. But I'm going to take you to the end. Readers are going to have to discover all this blow by blow in the excitement of your book. But you conclude your action, more or less, I think it's fair to say, in 1568, though Mary and Catherine live on. And if it's possible to ask you this, why then? Why did you decide to sort of bring your story to a conclusion then? There are two ends. Our young queens at the time, Mary and Elizabeth, both come to an end, one way or the other. Elizabeth dies in 1568. She's pregnant with her third child. It's not exactly complications from childbirth that she dies from. I think she was ill and then she miscarries in part because of that illness. And then Mary too experiences a demise. It's her fall from the throne of Scotland. She's taken prisoner and eventually she flees and then is taken prisoner in England. The young woman who had the French crown stripped away from her now has the Scottish crown stripped away from her. So again, everything that she grew up thinking that she had is now gone. And she's still quite a young woman when this happens. And again, I was struck by the coincidences, the chronological and the thematic coincidences of those lives of Mary and Elizabeth who had grown up together and then endure or suffer this end in different ways, but this end together at the same time. So Elizabeth has died. Mary goes on to quite well-known part of her story where the identity of young queen becomes a little bit different. In the story that I've told, she's this young woman, she's fertile, she's so vulnerable to the machinations of both men and other women because she is this young queen. And now her story transforms into something different, much as Catherine's story changes once she arrives in France. So there is this sort of passage of an actual physical movement and then a kind of transition to a different chapter in their story. But the other reason why I wanted to end it there is that there is only one letter that remains between Mary and Elizabeth. And that letter is written by Mary just as she's started her imprisonment in England. And it's actually written after Elizabeth dies and Mary doesn't realize that she's died. And the pathos of that letter, the tragedy of that letter for me was heartbreaking that I knew I wanted to end with that one exchange that kind of missed its mark. I always wonder what would have happened for Mary if Elizabeth had lived. Maybe it would have gone differently, but then maybe not. I don't know. It all depends on what would have happened to Elizabeth too, how she might have changed. And this book does a wonderful job of raising those questions of the way that history might have gone. It's a reminder to everybody that the historian brings her perspective to the material and that each person coming to this can find new things in it if they're asking different questions. But it is a monumental work of archival research, I said, and it's also a monumental success. The book is called Young Queens, 
three Renaissance women and the price of power, do rush and get yourself a copy of this really fantastic read about three women who are some of the most powerful figures in Renaissance Europe. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.